Hey, ER nerds in the D.C. area, join us and our friends from Lawfare on Tuesday, September 26th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. at Hill Country in downtown D.C. for our first ever joint event, Bar Review Live, Prosecuting and Defending the Trump Presidency. We'll be joined by former White House counsels Bob Bauer and A.B. Culvahouse for an evening of spirited discussion in an informal setting. For ticket information and more details, check out foreign policy backslash bar review. Yemen is a very low priority for this administration, even lower than the previous. If the U.S. wants this conflict to end, because it's beginning to create not only an awful humanitarian crisis, but even maybe some strategic problems, is the U.S. using its full leverage with the Saudis and with their Gulf allies? Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington, D.C. today, and I'm joined here in our studio by Foreign Policy's Dan DeLuce and Paul McCleary. Dan is FP's Chief National Security Correspondent, and Paul is a senior reporter covering the Defense Department and National Security Issues. And on the line, we have with us Ambassador Gerald Feierstein. He is Director for Gulf Affairs and Government Relations at the Middle East Institute. He retired from the Foreign Service in May 2016 after a 41-year career. As a diplomat, he served in nine overseas postings, including three tours of duty in Pakistan, as well as assignments in Saudi Arabia, Oman, Lebanon, Jerusalem, and Tunisia. In 2010, President Obama appointed Ambassador Feierstein as the ambassador to Yemen, where he served until 2013. And on Stipe, we have Christine Beckerly. Christine is the Yemen and UAE researcher at Human Rights Watch, investigating international human rights and humanitarian law violations in Yemen. She previously worked with the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees in Amman, Jordan, on issues related to gender-based violence international protection. ER fans, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. I want to start off talking today about Yemen, which is one of these topics that never seems to get nearly as much attention as um, I think a lot of us feel it should. Christine, Human Rights Watch has an, a new report out today. Can you tell us a little bit about it and what its conclusions are? Sure. Yeah. So basically what we did with this report was that we had heard repeatedly from different policymakers that the Saudi-led coalition had promised to clean up its act, basically. It had said it had tightened its rules of engagements and it was working to better minimize civilian harm. So we wanted to test that. And what we did was we decided to look at airstrikes since those promises were publicly reported to see, well, are there still the same sorts of laws of war violations that we've seen repeatedly throughout the course of this conflict? And what we found was that just in the last three months, in June, July, and August 2017, the coalition had again struck family homes, apartment buildings, a grocery store, killing dozens of killing or wounding dozens of children, killing or wounding dozens of civilians. And in all of these strikes, we concluded that they appeared to violate the laws of war. And the thing that is I think most tragic about this is none of it's surprising, none of it's new. Since the start of the conflict, we've documented close to 90 unlawful attacks or apparently unlawful attacks by the Saudi-led coalition. And we knew when we first saw the reporting that the Saudis were going to better comply with the laws of war, I was the first one to hope that that was true. But given what I had known about past Saudi practices and past Saudi empty promises to policymakers. Ambassador, can you take us back a few years in time, you were in Yemen um, up until uh, up through 2013. What was going on then and what happened subsequently going into 2014 that set up the situation that we're now in? Well, um, from 2011, uh, the beginning of the Arab Spring, February 2011, until 
uh, I departed, and, and, and actually well into 2014, uh, we were in the process of implementing the GCC initiative. Uh, there were elections for an interim president, uh, Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi, uh, and there were a number of steps that were agreed upon among the various parties in Yemen that would not only address the immediate causes of the Arab Spring and the uh, political uh, uprising against uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, but also to try to address some of the more uh, deeply seated uh, issues within Yemen, uh, the problems between North and South, the problems with the, the Houthis, Houthi grievances, uh, as well as a number of other things. And, and so the Yemenis were working through all of these uh, issues. There were various aspects. There was a, a reorganization of military and security forces. There uh, was a national dialogue conference that was meant to address uh, all of these issues. And, and frankly speaking, within that context, uh, the GCC initiative was moving forward and it was being implemented in a pretty good way. Outside of that context, though, uh, there was continued dysfunctionality within Yemen. The government uh, never really came together, was never really able to take on its responsibilities. Frankly speaking, the Yemeni people were becoming more and more dissatisfied with the way this transition was, was being carried out. In 2014, we had the end of the National Dialogue Conference with a, an agreed series of recommendations uh, that all of the parties, including the Houthis in the South, uh, had worked on and had accepted. And we went into a constitutional uh, uh, reform or redesign uh, project uh, that uh, the Yemenis undertook in Abu Dhabi. Uh, so all of that was going forward, but at the same time, the security situation continued to deteriorate. And beginning in uh, the summer of 2014, uh, the Houthis and Ali Abdullah Saleh began to cooperate on a series of measures beginning uh, outside of Sana'a in Amran, north of Sana'a, and carrying through until eventually uh, they were able to occupy the capital and uh, begin to demand some changes in the format of the GCC initiative and the, and the format of the government. From the fall of 2014, until the outbreak of the conflict early in 2015, you saw the uh, the situation deteriorating, uh, the government becoming more stressed and, and basically under pressure from uh, the Houthis and Saleh until finally it collapsed. Uh, and uh, Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi was forced to flee from Sana'a, first to Aden and then uh, out, uh, out of Aden to Oman and then to Riyadh. Uh, and uh, the situation in terms of the border, in terms of Iranian engagement, in terms of a lot of other things that were going on, deteriorated to the point where, uh, uh, frankly speaking, the government fled, it was in exile. The Houthis and uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh not only occupied the capital, but began a military campaign to take control of the rest of the country. Uh, and we and the Saudis and, and a number of others believe that what we were witnessing was a coup d'etat, uh, not only in, in uh, violation of, of the uh, legitimate government of Yemen, but frankly in violation of an agreement that we had all worked on and all had committed to support, uh, which led us in uh, March of 2015 
to the Saudi decision to intervene militarily. So we get there. And Paul, can you tell us a little bit, what what sort of support was the Pentagon providing um, Saudi Arabia and the Saudi-led coalition in March of 2015 in those initial months? Uh, initially, I mean, the United States had uh, a detachment of about 125 special operations forces in Yemen at the time that was supporting the government, doing training and advising, and they pulled them out at the time. And I believe that the Obama administration was in support of uh, the Saudi initial incursion, Saudi-led initial incursion in March, and, and stepping up airstrikes, things like that, in order to support the Hadi government. It was envisioned as, as pretty limited, I believe, at the time when it started. You know, it's been going yeah. on for over two years. Go ahead, Ambassador. If I can, if mm-hmm. I can say, because of course, uh, at that point, I was the uh, principal deputy in the Near East Bureau and uh, involved in the in the discussions. And, and fundamentally, as Paul said quite correctly, the uh, position of the administration uh, was to support the the Saudi uh, decision uh, and to provide limited uh, kinds of assistance that uh, involved sharing. Uh, the intel picture, and by saying the intel picture, I want to be clear that we never provided actionable intelligence. In other words, we never said, um, you know, there is a target in Sana'a that you should strike. But but to provide a, a general understanding of the situation on the ground, we did do that. Could I ask a question there? What, what does that mean? I mean, for the person listening, what is the difference between actionable intelligence and providing a picture on the ground? I mean, when when sort of rubber hits the road, what the, what you know what is actually provided then? Well, in other words, uh, uh, to provide context, to to provide you know general understanding of what the situation was like on the ground. Uh, to give uh, a broad uh, picture of where the military movements were, where, you know, what was going on. But actionable intelligence is basically specifically aimed at, you know, here is a target, go out and hit it. Got it. And that was was something that we never did. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did provide uh, some uh, aerial refueling support to allow the Saudis to stay up in the air longer. Uh, uh, We did also have personnel from Central Command stationed with the Saudis at the Kayok, the, uh, the Air Operations Center at Prince Sultan Air Base, uh, that were trying to help them improve their capabilities. And this goes back to the comment that, uh, that we were discussing earlier of Human Rights Watch reporting. Uh, and that is that, you know, certainly our, our sense, our understanding was, was that the Saudi Air Force, the coalition uh, uh, air campaign, was certainly not meeting uh, what we would think of as international standards. I mean, there was certainly a level of incapacity there that was troubling, and that led uh, to many of the uh, of the issues that we have, that we're concerned about, and, and that the international community is concerned about. And so we were there uh, trying to work with them to help them improve their performance and their ability to ensure uh, that, the, uh, that the incidence of civilian casualties and, uh, and collateral damage was reduced to the absolute minimum. Well, the, Dan, my question for Dan then, and Ambassador, you, you will probably also want to weigh on this. What was, I mean, that's very sort of a tactical approach to it. We'll help the Saudis in some capacity. But what was, you know, back in March of 2015 and going forward, what was the U.S. strategy? I mean, did the U.S. hope that the Saudis would successfully push back the Houthis, Hadi would go back, and I mean, life may not be happily ever after, but it would be back on track in terms of what was going on and the plans? 
That's a good question. I think first you have to think about the atmosphere and the climate. So, you know, remember that this was deep uh, into the nuclear negotiations with Iran, between the Iran and the U.S. and world powers. And they were very close to an agreement. And uh, this whole negotiation made the Saudis and the Emiratis and all the Gulf countries extremely nervous, very unhappy, very anxious that some kind of tectonic shift was was coming and that the U.S. would now be moving closer to Tehran and maybe no longer sort of abiding by this kind of post-World War II arrangement. So uh, Ambassador uh, will be able to weigh in on this, uh, but clearly uh, the White House then was very was aware of the Saudi resentment, and so here the Saudis were coming to them saying, "We've got a problem in our backyard. Uh, we'd like your help." And I think it was probably a way, uh, partly to to say, you know, uh, we're, we're, we have your back. We're still your ally, and we'll help you. Now, uh, I, I think though, uh, over time, uh, some of the Saudis and the and the Gulf countries felt the U.S. should be doing more. Uh, more, more military assistance, more intelligence sharing, and so on, uh, and, and maybe more help with the whole air campaign. Um, so it was, it was I, I think you can uh, weigh in on this again, but it does seem like the Obama administration was caught in, in between. So on the one hand, they weren't willing to sort of really uh, have kind of full, full-blown, full-fledged support for the Saudis, because they were fighting Islamic. Islamic State was was on the loose at that point. They were occupying huge swaths of territory in Iraq, uh, in Syria. That was the immediate uh, kind of wolf at the door. Plus, they had this nuclear negotiation. So the U.S. wasn't even really in a position uh, to to really kind of go beyond limited assistance. So this was a way of playing it. But I think the key question here would be: It's a hypothetical, and you can't answer it. What if there was no JCPOA? What if there was no nuclear ag- agreement at that point? Would Obama have said, no, I'm not really going to help you with this. Uh, I'm not confident this is going to be successful. And let's just do this diplomatically. It, we'll never know the answer, but you have to wonder. Ambassador, do you have thoughts on that? <laughs> well, uh, that's an extremely hypothetical question. Yes. Uh, but what I would say, I, I agree that, that that was an undercurrent. Uh, in terms of the administration uh, decisions, but but I would also make the point that uh, both we and the Saudis uh, at that juncture had very limited goals in this issue. The Saudi decision to intervene came before the total collapse of the Hadi government, uh, and the original idea was to try to stabilize the Hadi government in Aden, uh, secure um, a, a defensive perimeter and then uh, get back into negotiations before the Saudis, you know, between the time they made the decision and the time they actually intervened, uh, fundamentally the, the whole situation had deteriorated to the point where Hadi was out of the country and the Houthis were driving down uh, into the south uh, towards Aden. And so the, uh, the situation shifted very quickly. But, but fundamentally, the, the objectives uh, for both the U.S. and the Saudis were, were limited to restoring the legitimate government of, uh, of Yemen, uh, um, not permitting, you know, that government to be overthrown uh, violently through coup d'etat, which is what was happening, uh, and also to secure the, uh, the, the Saudi-Yemeni border, because for several months before this, we had seen the Houthis, 
with Iranian encouragement, uh, uh, militarily threatening the security of the border, launching, you know, military exercises, uh, um, uh, issuing a number of extremely provocative and aggressive statements uh, against Saudi Arabia. So, so, you know, secure the border, get the legitimate government back, not necessarily to uh, remain. And, and we weren't opposed uh, to the idea that there might be uh, some negotiated change in the format of the government. Uh, but, but to do it through a process of negotiation, not coup. And finally, to complete the last elements of the GCC initiative to allow the Yemeni people to, uh, to basically go to the polls and choose a government, which they hadn't been able to do for a decade. Those were the objectives, and, and we supported that. Uh, please, Dan. That's interesting. Like- I'm wondering, during that early stage, you said when, before the government fell, was there a feeling uh, on your end that the Saudis were, 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 were not being active enough? Did you want the Saudis to intervene earlier in different ways to kind of shore up the Hadi government? Absolutely. And, and this was a, a discussion that we had with the Saudis uh, for a number of months through those fall and winter months of, uh, of 2014 leading into the spring of 2015, uh, that we had expressed concern to the Saudis about uh, the uh, the political uh, situation, the economic situation that was deter- uh, deteriorating in Yemen, uh, and encouraging them to be more aggressive in uh, supporting Hadi and trying to stabilize the political situation there. And at that time, the Saudis were reluctant to become more deeply involved. Uh, they were frustrated with Hadi and Hadi's performance, uh, and uh, and therefore. Uh, they didn't really uh, want to get involved until they saw the situation uh, deteriorating in a way that, that they felt fairly, in my view, uh, threatened their own security. Um, so as things went on, so March 2015, the, the Saudi and coalition airstrikes start, and pretty quickly reports emerge of pretty horrendous civilian casualties. Also, there are beginning reports of the use of cluster munitions um, I, I'm going to turn to Christine in a second, but Paul, can you walk me through particularly the reports of the cluster munitions? What happened? Why were they so, so controversial? And what was the pushback? Uh, well, the Saudi airstrikes, I mean, you know, there were Americans not helping targeting apparently, but in, in, in the chaos in Saudi Arabia who were assisting and the Saudis – weren't always taking all of the advice or, or listening to you know all the intelligence they were begin, being given, and they were hitting hospitals, schools, markets, funerals. Uh, you know, as, as we've all seen, often using cluster munitions. You know, bought from the United States, from the UK, and, and from other countries um, that would spread you know wide scale devastation across targets they'd hit. And also, not all of the cluster munitions explode immediately. So shepherds or children will walk by and step on them, and 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 killed or injured uh, months later, um, all of which, which caused pretty widespread international condemnation uh, of, of, of the Saudi-led campaign and caused President Obama to then pull back some of the U.S. support in the, uh, in the operations center in, in Saudi Arabia. The refueling sorties uh, continued as they continue now, but most of that uh, intelligence, I guess, help or assistance uh, ended at the, in large part due to these civilian casualties. Right. Yeah. Christine, the, the cluster munitions, I mean, I know that Human Rights Watch has been very involved in documenting this. The, the Brits pushed back heavily 
um, after reports that Saudi Arabia was using um, you know, British-made cluster munitions. I believe the Obama administration finally blocked sales of further um, cluster munitions, I think, in December 2016. Does that sound right, Paul? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've still seen reports. Well, if, I think, I, if I could just jump in. Sure. Uh, uh, no, the, the, uh, the decision not to sell any more cluster munitions actually came in the spring of uh, 2016. The, uh, the decision in, um, in late 2016, following the, um, the, the Saudi hit on the funeral parlor, was uh, not to sell precision-guided munitions, mm-hmm. which are different from cluster munitions. Right. Okay. But then, Christine, if I remember right, Human Rights Watch has documented that the Saudis continue to use cluster munitions, I believe Brazilian-made ones. Is that correct? Yeah, so um, the ambassador certainly has the timeline correct, but I think the reason uh, the cluster munitions story is one both of success and frustration is because you did have the U.S. halt the transfer of cluster munitions to Saudi Arabia. And I mean, to be fair, this was after Human Rights Watch and others had documented the coalition using U.S.-made cluster munitions um, in on our end more than a dozen attacks. Um, you have the U.K. pushing back strongly against the Saudis' use of uh, British-made cluster munition and the Saudis coming and saying, OK, actually, you know what, we will not use this specific type of cluster munition anymore in Yemen. And that was in uh, late 2016. So immediately following that... Um, Human Rights Watch documented a cluster munition attack in northern Yemen. This time they used Brazilian-made cluster munitions. A few months later, both Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International documented further cluster munition attacks, again, using Brazilian-made cluster munitions. But the point of the matter is... If I promise someone I won't punch them with my left hand and then I punch them with my right hand, I'm still injuring them and I'm still not living up to the reason why people have pushed back against my actions in the first place. Um, And I think one of the things that's really struck me with cluster munitions is we've also done a lot of work on uh, Houthi Salah forces use of anti-personnel landmines, which I think it's it's pretty easy for people to understand why anti-personnel mines are bad because they stay long after a conflict and they make it hard for civilian to return home, for humanitarian aid to get in, and they wound or kill civilians indiscriminately. But the fact of the matter is, the coalition, whenever we talk about Houthi Salah use of landmines, that's covered in all the Gulf media outlets. However, cluster munitions, um, as you guys were describing, they do something similar, where if those submunitions don't explode, they stay around and basically act as de facto landmines long after a conflict ends. Um, and so the reason we push we push so hard on cluster munitions is one, many, many countries across the globe have come together and agreed that nobody should use cluster munitions ever. And two, the way in which the coalition has used cluster munitions in Yemen has in fact led to civilian casualties, has in fact, the one we documented in December was near two schools, the one we documented in March wounded two boys on a farm. So it's really, you're talking about those are the immediate injuries, but these are the sorts of weapons that can cause injuries long after a conflict ends. Um, and just one other thing, in terms of airstrikes, and to go back to a little bit about what the ambassador was saying in terms of U.S. support, one thing that I've never really understood in terms of the U.S. positioning, um, and, and, and maybe he can elucidate, is that there's been a lot of focus on what intelligence was shared. Was it targeting intelligence? Was it actionable intelligence and all of this? But the fact of the matter is, if you're doing the analysis on a legal liabilities sort of front, refueling of coalition jets on bombing missions can also lead to the U.S. itself to being a party to this conflict, to potentially aiding and abetting coalition war crimes. 
under a variety of analyses that have gone out over and over throughout the course of this conflict, and yet refueling continues, and yet arms sales continue, um, despite the fact that Human Rights Watch has documented 23 attacks where coalition cluster munitions or uh, U.S. cluster munitions or U.S. other sorts of weapon systems have been used in apparently unlawful attacks. We've documented, like I said, close to 90 apparently unlawful attacks in Yemen. And this is really a fraction likely of the attacks that the coalition has conducted that should raise red flags. And yet on the U.S. side, we've still seen basically no transparency at all in terms of what they're doing to track whether or not their own weapons are being used in these unlawful attacks, what they're doing to track whether or not the jets that they're refueling, be they Saudi or Emirati or anybody else, on missions in Yemen have then gone on to attack a school, a hospital, a market, a home. The one time I ever saw public reporting about refueling and what the targets were was that the U.S. said definitively it did not refuel coalition jets on the day the funeral hall in Sana'a was bombed, that the U.S. rightly so came out strongly and said this was unacceptable and we're going to review our support to the Saudi-led coalition. But here we are months later, and as far as I know, refueling continues, transparency still is lacking. And without that transparency, it becomes very hard to say that the U.S. has not been complicit in any of these many, many attacks that we and others have documented. And so on the U.S. side, talking back on the history of the war and to hear about the ways in which they tried to limit that support to the Saudis, it still leaves open the question, okay, but the support that you are decided to provide and are still providing leaves U.S. individuals open to potential legal liability for coalition war crimes in Yemen. And I think that's a big question that has really not been given enough airtime, nor at least from what I can see from the outside, that the U.S. government has not put forward at least a public rationale for why they think that this is worthwhile, particularly when all of the objectives that they either say they were supporting the coalition to achieve in Yemen have really not been achieved. The border is not secured. The Yemeni government is not in power. Houthi Saleh forces still control large swaths of the territory. Um, and the situation for Yemeni civilians, both humanitarian-wise and in terms of the space for civil society to operate or just the effects of war, has become far, far worse. Well, uh, let me pick up on yeah, that. If I can just uh, yes. uh, jump in very quickly on sure. the issue of U.S. refueling. My understanding is that U.S. refueling of coalition aircraft is limited to uh, defense of the Saudi-Yemeni border. Uh, I don't believe uh, that the U.S. is refueling aircraft that are involved in any of the uh, penetrations of Yemen that go beyond the border area. Well, Paul, you... Oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, no. I mean, there's an issue with transparency there, too. Um, yeah, does the Pentagon make that distinction when you've spoken to them, Paul? They don't. And up until recently, if you asked the U.S. Central Command or uh, the Pentagon how many refueling sorties they have flown uh, to support Yemen operations, they would give you a number. They would give you how much they've spent, how many sorties there have been, uh, and how many uh, gallons of fuel they've pumped. Uh, just recently, they stopped doing that, and they won't release the number, and they're saying they're uh, folding in the Yemen operations into the Horn of Africa operation. So they'll, they'll give you a number for the Horn of Africa, how many refueling, refueling sorties have been flowing there, which doesn't give you really any sense of what they're doing in Yemen. Right. So they're not even giving you the total number no. of refueling flights in Yemen now, let alone whether there is this distinction. I exactly. mean, it may be ambassador, but it sounds like the Pentagon isn't at least isn't giving insight into those numbers or where they're they're designated. Right. Right.
right. I, I, I don't disagree with that. Uh, and I think it would be worthwhile uh, for them to, to be uh, more direct in, in responding to that. But uh, that's what I've been told. Right. Well, that's interesting. That'd be something for us to follow up on. Uh, maybe a broader question, and anyone can jump in here. You know, so we're now over two years into the Saudi-led coalition of of its airstrikes and its intervention in Yemen. And two things seem very apparent. One is that I don't think anyone argues, to include Saudi Arabia, I mean, this is a humanitarian catastrophe. Um, the, the reports of, you know, malnutrition, of sickness, of illness are pretty white, of civilian casualties are widespread. And then the second thing, and, and maybe someone would disagree with this, it, you know, the Saudi coalition has not been successful. Um, the Houthis are still there. Um, Hadi, if anything, too, I think has been pretty delegitimized, even among parts of the population that um, don't support the Houthis or are very much against the Houthis. Maybe there's some disagreement there. What what, Ambassador, what what should be the strategy now? I mean, what what should the U.S. do? Well, I, <laughs> um, it's, it's a $64,000 question, and I think yeah. that you're absolutely right uh, in saying that nobody disagrees uh, with with the fundamental point that you've made, which is that, uh, that this uh, conflict has dragged on far longer than anyone anticipated, certainly more than anyone wanted. Uh, I, I know from my own conversations going back to when I was still in government uh, that the Saudis, uh, I believe, uh, would welcome a way out of this um, uh, conflict. Uh, and we've seen uh, quite recently some uh, uh, reports of comments that uh, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has made to, uh, to uh, American uh, interlocutors reiterating that point. Uh, I believe that uh, that uh, he's speaking truthfully when he says that Saudi Arabia would like to see an end to this. I think that there are two components uh, uh, to this. Uh, one is that the humanitarian situation needs to be addressed uh, urgently. Uh, there, there, uh, the UN has put a couple of proposals on the table regarding the uh, port of Hodeida, which is the entree port for um, about 75% of the Yemeni population in the north. Uh, as well as uh, reopening Sana'a Airport, uh, which is the lifeline for thousands and thousands of Yemenis. Uh, and so uh, they have proposed that both the uh, port and the airport be turned over to neutral third parties and allowed to operate. Uh, the coalition and the, and the uh, Yemeni government have said yes. Uh, the Houthis have said no, and primarily, I think, because uh, for uh, the Houthis, uh, the money that they collect uh, in the uh, port of Hodeida uh, is really what is financing their, uh, their conflict. So I, I think that we need to put more pressure on, on them and uh, those who support them to, uh, to get them to, to do more to try to address this humanitarian issue. The other uh, aspect on the humanitarian side is to get the central bank uh, working again because uh, there's not uh, the, the irony here is that there's not necessarily a shortage of food and other necessities in the markets in uh, Yemen. Uh, what there is is a shortage of cash uh, for many Yemenis uh, to purchase those uh, those necessities, uh, and that's because 25% of the Yemeni population uh, is dependent in one form or another on payments from the central bank and the central bank is not functioning. 
So we need to get the central bank working again to get cash into the economy so that people uh, have the ability to go out and buy what they need. That's one side of the, the issue. The other side of the issue is to continue to press uh, on all of the parties to go back to the negotiations. This is where uh, Ismail, uh, uh, old uh, Sheikh Ahmed, has been working very uh, hard for the last year. We thought, uh, the Saudis thought, I think that there was a general sense uh, in the middle of 2016 uh, that we were close to an agreement on a format, a formula for ending the conflict and getting back into a political track. It didn't work. We're now well over a year after the end of uh, those negotiations. We need to get back, and we need to finish that, allow the parties to go back to Sana'a. Uh, in terms of, uh, of the Hadi government, I think it's important that, that we maintain the principle that, um, that there should not uh, be uh, the re a result of a coup d'etat that leads to, to political change. But that doesn't mean that there can't be a negotiation and a resolution through political dialogue that allows for some change in the, in the government. But the critical factor is that, again, the GCC initiative is nearly finished. There are only a few steps left uh, in the context of that initiative that need to be taken before we can finish this transition period and allow the Yemenis to go back and decide for themselves who they want uh, to govern them, who they, you know, what kind of a system, what kind of a, of a government structure they want. And we need to finish this uh, transition period and allow the Yemenis to get back to that, you know, fundamental uh, aspect of, uh, of democratic self-government uh, as quickly as possible. Dan, did you want to weigh in there for a second? It's interesting. I mean, there was this sense that maybe they were going to cut a deal in, in last year. And and in fairness, I think most people would say that the the Obama administration put a lot of effort into that. Secretary Kerry put effort into it, and now you do you don't see that with the Trump administration. Um, in our reporting, I think Paul and I couldn't find any kind of sign of a serious diplomatic push going on. Uh, and and never mind the fact that there are several positions that are not filled uh, in the upper levels of the State Department that would be dealing with that. Uh, and there's no ambassador to Saudi Arabia, by the way. So there's that aspect. But there is but, an ambassador to Yemen. Yes, there is. Who is located where? <laughs> in Jeddah. Yeah. Okay. In, yeah. Yeah. But, it, it, you know, and there's, there's no assistant secretary for the... But anyway, uh, beyond the empty seats... Uh, Yemen is a very low priority for this administration, even lower than the previous. And <clears throat> you have to ask yourself, if the U.S. wants this conflict to end, because it's beginning to create you know, not only an awful humanitarian crisis, but, but even maybe some strategic problems, uh, maybe the U.S. – is the U.S. using its full leverage with the Saudis and with their Gulf allies? Uh, I, I don't know. That seems to be an open question. And as someone was telling me who used to work in the government, they said, what if the U.S. just went to Riyadh and said, we are ready to pull our, the help that we're giving you. We're not going to give you this assistance anymore. What would that mean? Um, you know, it, it, so it does seem like there's been this disconnect where uh, the U.S. Uh, would speak to the Saudis and say, let's wrap this up. Let's have a diplomatic uh, end to this. And, and then here we are, and the bombing continues. And you're right about the, 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 a good example of this whole uh, situation is the, the, uh, this, uh, this port in Hodeidah where uh, 
they desperately need to have, uh, reinstall these cranes that were bombed by Saudi jets. And since January, there's been this plan funded by USAID where the World Food Program would install these four cranes. And the Saudis have said no. And, and just recently, last month, the U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley, met with uh, the Saudis and the coalition, and they got a no. And so you have to ask, you have to ask what is, how does this U.S.-Saudi relationship work, and what is the U.S. leverage here, and how far is the U.S. willing to tolerate what are possible war crimes, uh, uh, this, uh, the worst outbreak of cholera in the modern era? I mean, it's pretty horrendous. Well, if if I can just say, um, first of all, I I agree entirely with your point that it would be worthwhile for uh, Secretary Tillerson and and other senior uh, U.S. officials. David Satterfield is now the acting assistant secretary in the Near East Bureau. Uh, David is an extremely experienced and very knowledgeable uh, officer. Uh, It would be good for him to be uh, more deeply engaged. Matt Tuller, who's been our ambassador since 2014, is still on. Um, uh, on the case and, and working uh, as hard as he can to try to push things forward. But you're absolutely right. That would be good uh, for the administration to de- uh, demonstrate uh, uh, a more focus on the Yemen situation. But the problem that I have here is that all of the conversations, and not just this conversation, but more broadly, is all about putting pressure on one side of the uh, of the coin, and frankly speaking, not the side that started this whole thing. Uh, we don't talk about the need to put more pressure on the Houthis. Uh, well, Ambassador, I mean, Ambassador, if I may, for two years, the Houthis have been, I mean, Yemen has been, to say there's no pressure on them, I mean, there have been over two years of airstrikes on them. I mean, does yes, that... There's no political, there's no political pressure. I mean, if we're talking about going to Riyadh uh, to tell the Saudis to cut it out, well, the Saudis, again, you know, I, I think in our view, had legitimate concerns. Uh, Can and, I come in here? Uh, I'm sorry? Is, is it, I just want to come back to, to a couple of things you said about Hudaida and Sana'a and the impediments uh, on humanitarian aid, if that's okay. Just really quickly, I, I think it's totally fair. I'm the first one to critique the Houthi Salicide in terms of their interference with humanitarian aid. We've looked at them not allowing food into Yemen's third largest city. We've looked at the pressure they've put on humanitarian agencies in the areas under their control. But to argue that the coalition has said that, well, let's just give Hudaydah port or Sana'a airport to a neutral third party, well, they've, they've, they're acting in good faith and the Houthi Salicide is, is acting against that. That's not acting in good faith because two things. One, I don't mean to keep rattling on about it international law here, but the the requirement to facilitate the prompt and unimpeded flow of aid into the civilian population is not a it's it's not subject to negotiation. That's on both parties at all times. And the way in which people are talking about it in the Yemen policy context is okay, well, you know, we can't solve these problems. We can't solve the problem of the cranes. We can't solve the problem of the airport because that's subject to political negotiation and we're trying to work out a deal between the Houthi Salicide and the Saudi led coalition. But the fact of the matter is international law it, it doesn't matter what the other side does. You have to follow your own obligations. And on Hudaydah port in the airport, I mean, first of all, has the UN said that they're willing to take on the control of a, a large commercial port or a large commercial airport or any neutral third party? And of course, the Houthi Salicide has said no. That's unsurprising. And, and I'm not saying that what the Houthi Salicide is doing 
in the areas under its control is good. No, in fact, we know we've documented them interfering with humanitarian aid, but that does not change the fact that the coalition has imposed arbitrary and excessive restrictions on the ability of goods to get into the country to the populations that need it, and not just goods. They've also blocked journalists and human rights organizations from getting into areas under Houthi control for many, many months. Um, and the reason I'm sort of intervening here is because the reason that we talk about people putting pressure on the Saudi-led coalition is because there's one side to this conflict that the U.S. is refueling planes for, selling weapons to, has a very close relationship with, and is clearly susceptible to U.S. pressure. So there's one side where there's an ability for the U.S. to play the role of the good guy. There's an ability and an opportunity for the U.S. to push finally for better outcomes for Yemeni civilians, but they're not taking that. And the re the response always is, well, the Houthi Salicide also commits violations. Of course they do. And of course we document them. And of course we call for pressure to be put on them by anyone who has communications with the Houthi Salicide. But when we're talking to the U.S., when we're talking about U.S. policy, we're obviously going to be focusing on the coalition because that's the side the U.S. continues to support. That's the side the U.S. has leveraged over. And that's the side the U.S. has elected to continue to support quite blindly, it seems, in that, okay, you can have as, as many private advocacy meetings as you want, but if the Saudi-led coalition won't allow the cranes you funded to get into Hudayda port, if the Saudi-led coalition is going to continue to use your weapons in potential war crimes, at what point is, is stronger action going to be taken on the U.S. side to make clear that that's, it's unacceptable? Well, I, I would say, first of all, that the U.N., which which put the uh, the proposal for Hodeida and Sinai Airport on the table, uh, I think, has uh, uh, certainly signaled that either they or, you know, they would facilitate uh, the identification whether or not the UN is the most appropriate organization to to provide the third party, neutral third party, or whether there's some other. I, I know that some people have suggested that uh, that there might be uh, uh, Yemenis groups or individuals who might be recruited for, uh, for this position. Um, but, but I do think that if there's agreement on reopening Hodeida and Sanai Airport, uh, then in fact the, uh, the requirement to identify a, a, an appropriate third party would be, would be uh, uh, able, you know, would be feasible. Um, I, again, I come back to the basic point. It wasn't the Saudi-led coalition that initiated this conflict. It wasn't the Saudi-led coalition that tried to overthrow the legitimate government of Yemen and interfere with the political transition that all of the parties had agreed to in 2011, including the Houthis. Uh, and so um, uh, to say that, you know, that uh, therefore we should, we should, you know, pressure the Saudis uh, because they're the ones that we can pressure uh, and and not um, address the issue that it was the Houthis who initiated this conflict. It's the it's the Houthis who keep this conflict going. Uh, it's the it's the Houthis uh, who um, uh, who have uh, refused to allow this political transition to be completed. So uh, do we um, uh, talk to the Saudis? Absolutely. But the Saudis have been clear. And again, I go back to the point. The Saudis have been clear, at least since the spring of 2016, that they are ready to support a political resolution of this conflict. They are not the ones who are the obstacle to, to this resolution. It is, you know, I think that you have to go back and you have to look at the role of the Houthis and the role of Ali Abdullah Saleh. And frankly speaking, we should be, or, or if not we directly, others should be speaking to the Iranians and pressuring them 
to put pressure on the Houthis to come to a political resolution. Not to say that the Houthis are a wholly owned subsidiary of the government of Iran. I don't believe that they are. But there's no doubt in my mind that the Iranians have the capacity uh, to, uh, to go to the Houthis and say, look, the time has come for you to negotiate an end to this thing. Right. So the Iranians are providing weapons. The Iranians are providing IRGC and Hezbollah advisors to the Houthis. They can also be responsible for trying to end this conflict and addressing the humanitarian crisis. Dan, I think you wanted to bring up something about the Iran issue. Yeah, I think that it is interesting to bring up Iran because that, that's been a, a kind of looming uh, factor in the equation, right? And so uh, the, the Saudis were panicked uh, somewhat, I think, that there could be this kind of Hezbollah-type uh, phenomenon on their border. And uh, the Trump administration is obviously extremely focused on Iran, um, even more than the last administration, and they have a different approach. They don't like this idea of some kind of diplomatic dialogue, uh, either through the nuclear agreement or not. And so uh, you, ha you have to wonder whether things might get worse in Yemen, because if the Trump administration uh, starts to raise tensions with Tehran, how is that going to play out in, in places like Yemen, where there's this kind of wider... Uh, kind of power struggle going on between Iran and the Saudis and, and the Gulf countries. And then the other thing I wanted to say was, speaking of Iran, um, maybe they've won. They, maybe they are the winner. An article quotes Bruce Rydell, the former CIA officer who advised uh, several presidents, that, you know, really Iran at the moment has emerged as the winner in this, uh, if you want to take a cynical view, because they haven't had to put much skin in the game. But they see their, their adversaries, the Saudis and the Emiratis, you know, bleeding and spending huge sums of money on this. And it is not going well militarily at all. They are not making progress. It's a stalemate. Um, and you don't see very imaginative approaches to the diplomatic solution. We can debate uh, where the share of blame lies. But you, you have to wonder, the longer this goes on, um, for the sake of sort of the U.S.-Saudi relationship and some other goals, does, does there, is there wider strategic damage done that Iran ends up actually benefiting? Uh, you know, they've, they've secured the Assad regime in Syria. Uh, they've kind of helped fight off the Islamic State in Iraq. Iraq is considered an ally for Iran in some ways. And now they see the Saudis kind of flailing in Yemen. Um, you have to ask where this is going. Probably not good places. And on that, we are out of time. Um, Ambassador Christine, thank you so much for joining us. And again, ER fans, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Thank you. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.